1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Rob Mitchell about his new book, Experimental Life, Vitalism in Romantic Science and Literature. This came out in 2013 with the Johns Hopkins University Press. Now, one of the many things that I love about this book, and you'll hear about many more of them in the conversation to come, is the way that Rob manages to create a conversation Conversation or series of conversations among people, actors, texts, ideas, fields of inquiry, examples and cases from the arts and the sciences that we don't often put into dialogue, but that perhaps we should do, and we should do much, much more of, as I think the book really beautifully demonstrates. So, Rob is taking a case study here. This is a history of experimental vitalism located mostly in the romance era, but with important implications and resonances for the contemporary arts and sciences. And he's using this case study to help us rethink notions of life itself, vitality itself, vitalism itself. And so an an important implication of the book and an important result um, of the book that came out of at least my reading of it is that this has really helped me have a, a greater set of conceptual tools for Thinking about the relationship between what we might otherwise keep as separate spheres, right? Literary and scientific modes of thinking about relationships between bodies and texts, relationships between ideas of form and ideas of populations, living beings in different um, textual instantiations. So, uh, among other things, it's also just full of some really fascinating case studies that range from John Cage to Samuel Taylor Coleridge to surgical texts, texts about digestion, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's just full of really wonderful accounts that'll increase your reading list um, after reading the book because there'll be a lot of um, cases in here. I think you'll want to also, as I do, um, read more about and go and and, um, spend time with yourself because they are so wonderfully and vividly portrayed here. So it's a great book. Um, It was a great pleasure to read, and I also learned a lot from it. And it was also a really great pleasure to talk with Rob about it. So I hope you'll have a chance um, to pick up the book and to read through it. But also, I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. I absolutely did. We're here today to talk with Robert Mitchell about his new book, Experimental Life, Vitalism in Romantic Science and Literature. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Rob. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, It's great to have you on the channel, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today.
0: Well, I'm really happy to be here and, and grateful for the opportunity to talk about my book.
1: So Rob, can you start us off as is traditional for the channel by saying just a little bit about your background and specifically what brought you to this intersection of the history and literary studies of science?
0: Well, I I have a a somewhat eclectic background in that as an undergraduate, I was a major in comparative history of ideas program, which is sort of intellectual history. And then I started in graduate school in history and I wanted to do media um, or information technology studies, essentially, and then ended up in literary studies um, in comparative literature uh, and as a romanticist. So someone who studies literature of the late 18th and 19th century, people like Wordsworth and Blake and so on. And my first book about the concept of sympathy in romanticism. And most of the book was about sympathy as we often think of it in terms of like a a psychological ability to you know feel what somebody else feels but sympathy in the 18th century and the 19th century was also used as a physiological term Um, so it was sort of a like the sympathetic nervous system that contemporary our our concept comes from that and so i did a bunch of research on the physiological aspect of sympathy and became very interested in that but that didn't make it into the first book because it didn't seem to fit and so i thought of my what eventually became this book experimental life as as um, continuing that project or thinking about the, the physiology of sympathy, which then connected up with notions of vitality in life. Um, and so that was sort of where the book began. And then I also do sort of another set of research that has nothing to do with literary criticism. That's about contemporary science and especially the way in which um, university labs that do science are connected up with money and with corporations. And became interested in the ways in which those labs, especially biology labs, um, understand their objects, um, their, you know, cells, cells and, and tissues and things like that. And some of those concerns and the readings that I was doing for that contemporary, line of research ended up resonating with the Romantic era uh, material that I was working on. And so I ended up with a book, working on a book that was trying to think about both what did life, vitality mean in the Romantic era, and what did experiment mean in the Romantic era. And the reason the term experiment's important is that the Romantics, um, people like Wordsworth and Coleridge, for example, um, and a number of, in Novalis in Germany, were The first, as far as I can tell, to use the term experiment to refer to the literary works that they were writing. So I ended up with this kind of – with from two different directions, looking at the relationship between science and literature in the Romantic era and thinking about both um, sort of living beings as they were really experimented upon in the Romantic era and – um, exp- and, and experiment in both the literature, uh, both in literature and the sciences. And so, it's a book that focuses primarily on British Romanticism, but then also discusses some smaller number of German um, and French authors as well. That's that's sort of the way I came to to the project.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So this actually brings us really nicely into the um, meat um, or the flesh, um, since we're talking about life and vitality, right, of the book itself. You mentioned at the beginning of the book that we're in the midst of what you call a vitalist turn in the humanities, in the social sciences, and in the natural sciences. In the humanities, you locate vitalism as a sort of sense of life as provocation. Now, you situate us right now within a larger history of three stages of or three eras of experimental vitalism. And you've just um, discussed the importance of the notion of experiment and the connection of experimentality to the history of vitalism that you're giving us today. So there's a first era of experimental vitalism, and this is largely where most of the case studies of the book are located. This is at the end of the 18th and start of the 19th centuries during the Romantic period in literature. There's a second era of experimental vitalism located at the end of the 19th and start of the 20th centuries during what we might call the modernist period in literature and art, and you locate the current interest in vitality as a third wave of experimental vitalism. Now, for most of the 20th and 21st century Vitalism, as you um, tell us very usefully in this book, has been a kind of gatekeeping term. And one of the goals of the book, at least um, from the perspective of one reader, right, which is all I can offer um, for for at least certainly this first part of the book, You're urging us here to rethink what we might assume about vitalism in terms of the work it does as a concept, the work it does politically, the work it does discursively. So can you maybe start us off um, by talking a little bit about that? In what ways has vitalism been a kind of gatekeeping term and how has vitalism been deployed in contemporary discourse and how are you um, asking us to rethink that?
0: Yeah, that's that's a helpful question. It's, I mean, so vitalism for most of the twentieth century has been essentially a um, a label that you apply to people who you think are not sufficiently rigorous scientifically and perhaps even politically suspect. So you don't want to be a vitalist. You don't proclaim yourself to be a vitalist generally, but you charge other people with being vitalists. Um, And there's been in most of the 20th century the implication that if you're a vitalist, you're not only not uh, sufficiently rigorous um, scientifically, but you're also perhaps even totalitarian in your political leanings. And this is because of a a link between a number of thinkers who did proclaim themselves vitalists at the end of the 19th century and the 20th century and than National Socialism, so there is a, there is a link between those two, and then that's I think that's the reason the term is functioned as a gatekeeping term. It's generally understood to mean if you charge someone with being a vitalist that they that this person whom you've charged believes in some kind of ineffable or inexplicable life force that is in principle. Um, unexplainable by science. So that, you know, the, 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 the idea is that if you were a vitalist, you're saying, well, there's, some, there's something that can't be investigated by science. Um, and so then, you know, scientists are often the people who charge other people with being, maybe even other scientists with being vitalists. I'm interested in a tradition of vitalism that actually doesn't say, Uh, that there's some aspect of life that we know right now, for some reason, is inexplicable, but rather says, well, there are aspects of living beings or of life that are inexplicable by contemporary concepts and experimental procedures, and hence we need to invent new concepts and we need to invent new experimental procedures in order to try and take account of life. So it's it's not an attempt to foreclosed an investigation into life but it's an attempt to acknowledge that there are aspects of of living beings and of life that are currently un cannot be understood well with contemporary scientific concepts or tools so um, and that's why I suggest and I argue basically that this begins in the late 18th early 19th century um, and then we have a we have a contemporary resurgence of this uh, and And the humanities, I think this is an easier case to make because there's a number of um, philosophers who are interested in questions of vitality and life, um, an equal number of people who are then charging them with being vitalists, so sort of the same debate all over again. But even in the sciences, there's a number of questions, for example, about development of cells or of organisms that have been kind of neglected for a while and that people are turning back to some of the vitalists to say, well, even if their answers were wrong as to why, say, how things develop, at least they were considering these questions. So there's an interest in, I don't think there's very many contemporary scientists who would call themselves vitalists, but they... Are approaching the question of life and living from that same perspective. Like, look, we need actually new concepts. We need new experiments to try to figure out what life is, what it's capable of. Um, and so, there's the sense of life as a problem, as a as a um, as a question to which we or for which we don't yet have the the, the proper. Um, uh, tools or or experiments. So that's the the, the, the approach to vitalism that I'm, that I'm taking. It's it's a tricky thing. I mean, I I'm aware that some people may not like the partial embrace of the term vitalism that I that I um, perform in the book, but I am doing that in with full knowledge that this is a tricky term and trying to take, you know, into account that there's also uh, a negative or a a problematic politics that's associated with that. Um, So I hope that this allows scholars in, you know, the humanities and the social sciences and perhaps even in the natural sciences to rethink that term vitalism or at least to rethink what it was that those people who were part of the tradition I call experimental vitalism were doing
1: Great. Thank you so much. And one of the really wonderful things about the book and the work that the book does is that that tradition of experimental vitalism was a tradition that transcended what we now think of as the arts and the sciences. So what you do in the first chapter of the book is you're bringing us into Um, this intersection between what we might consider otherwise to be two spheres, the arts and the sciences, and showing us really the genesis of a notion, actually several notions of experiment and experimentation in the romantic era, and then creating a dialogue between romantic thinkers like Wordsworth, Coleridge, um, and more contemporary thinkers like John Cage, Adorno, Latour, Popper, Kuhn, Gallison. It's one of the things I love so much about really all of the chapters of this book is um, the way that they're creating dialogues among people who otherwise we don't have an opportunity to put into dialogue um, with each other. So it's it's one of the really exciting things about the book, one of many actually really exciting things about the book. So in this first chapter you um, bring us into a period where art begins to be called experimental in the Romantic era. And this first chapter looks carefully at at what's meant by the term experimental, paying special attention to the relationship between experiments in the sciences and in the arts. The first part of the chapter, I won't ask you to talk too much about, um, but I'll just kind of mention it for listeners. It outlines three different approaches to scientific experimentation in the 20th century. In, a, in part, um, as a way to show us and to demonstrate, there is no one unified concept of, of the scientific experiment full stop. This is inherently a plural concept, and so you take us into epistemological approaches, sociological approaches, and ontogenetic approaches. Now the second part of the chapter brings us into discussions of artistic experiments. And here you use as one of your case studies John Cage's description of his own experimental practice. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. In what sense for Cage can a musical work be experimental? And what do we need to understand about this case study to understand the larger argument that you're making in this part of the book?
0: yeah no, so i i mean w- w- one of the one of the interesting things to me as a as a um scholar of romanticism is that uh literary critics or scholars of romanticism have a, have long been aware and have noted that uh romantic era authors described some did at least described their works as experimental but Surprisingly, at least to me, there has been very little discussion of that term in literary criticism. So it's generally used by literary critics to mean something like new or difficult or creates a new literary form but that's it i mean there's no no real discussion whereas i wanted to take this term that the romantics use experiment when they apply it to art much more seriously and say well what did what did they mean by that term i mean what what did experiment mean for them and what does it mean for us on um, this tendency not to reflect on what the term experiment means in Discussions of art has persisted and is in other fields as well. Uh, so that there's, you know, if, if you look on Amazon and put in the term like experimental and put in film or put in music, you'll find all kinds of books on um, that catalog, different works that are experimental, different artworks, but very few that actually discuss the term. So what was interesting to me about Cage is um, that he was one of the he's one of the few people to reflect on this term experiment. And he he himself has been described, um, he described himself and he was described as, an, as someone who created experimental music, but he also wrote about that term and said, you know, well, what exactly, what does it mean to call my work experimental? And he made a very helpful distinction between two senses in which an artwork could be experimental. And the first one is maybe the one that's a little bit more obvious to us, which is that, before publishing, say, a novel or a, mu- or a musical composition, the artist has to experiment on his or her own with different strategies to see what he or she think works. So, in that case, the artist presents something to the public, like let's say a, a poem, um, but the experiments happened before the poem was published. Um, and so Cage is actually says that's sort of, you know, that's not the very interesting one. The more interesting one is when the the performance of a piece is the experiment itself. Um, it's harder to imagine with something like a poem because, you know, the poem is published in a certain form and then somebody reads it. But for Cage, what he was thinking of is, let's say that he makes, he said, he thought you know, let's make a composition in which there are no notes to be played. There's simply a person who sits at, a, at an instrument, doesn't play any notes at all, and the audience then will probably be surprised at first, and then will begin to listen to You know, sort of involuntarily, almost all the other sounds around them—other people's, you know, rustling of the of pants and keys, or somebody coughing—and so for Cage, it was that unpredictable part. I mean, who who knows what what exactly will happen in the performance? He thought of that as a second way in which an artwork could be experimental, where the artwork created a structure—in this case, a performance—that but doesn't dictate what actually happens during the performance. Um, now, of course, if you've you know, been to a performance like this, you may feel like you're, you've <laughs> gotten ripped off if you paid for it. Um, but it's the, the point is he was trying to imagine a different way in which an artwork could be experimental, where it took advantage of the environment that it was in to create something new. So I, I talk about Cage because he's honestly one of the few people to reflect at some length and with, I'd say, a fair amount of theoretical sophistication about what it could mean to experiment in the arts, um, and again, he, it's not that Cage talks about romantic poetry, but his his um, reflections were useful to me in trying to then think about well, what did the Romantics mean when they talked about a, a, a some sort of like a poem or a novel being experimental.
1: That's right, and, and the discussion of Cage, and then an elaboration um, of these ideas in your discussion of Adorno, actually brings us into a really beautiful extended discussion of Wordsworth and Coleridge's Lyrical Ballads as experiments, right? And you you kind of use the foundation um, of Cage to talk about and to help us think about uh, poems as as you call technologies for experiments that come into being again through performance, um, and you talk. Hear about the experiment. The fact of the lyrical ballads being not just a way to think about poems as technologies of experiment, but also as an experiment with experimentation itself. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting part of this book. Now you then move on to use these case studies to ask us to think about and to really open up a different way of thinking about temporality. And you suggest in this chapter that the conception of artistic experimentation really changes our understanding of the temporality of art. So could you um, talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like a really important part of the work that this chapter is doing.
0: Yeah. And it, it's an, it's an aspect of the chapter that I'll say I'm continuing, or it's an aspect that I'm continuing to think about. Um, and I, and I have what I, I, I mean, I like the formulation that I have in the, in that first chapter. Um, but I, I think it's, it leads to you know even further things that I'm continuing to work on. But um You know, once art becomes, if if people accept that art can be experimental, it actually, and take that as a value that art should be experimental, then it sets up a certain kind of dynamic in which there's um, an attempt to create to break open ever new ground in terms of what art can do, Um, and. This, I mean, as, as as Adorno was aware, this this produces a certain kind of scorched earth policy with respect to the past of art, because if what's important is the experiment and what you know the, the the new things that are created, this tends to devalue or at least make you know mundane and already known and not interesting the those artworks that came in the past. At the same time, of course, it's not that we can that there's only the cutting edge of new experimental art and we forget about everything else so it on the one hand privilege the, the notion of experiment privileges like like the, like the new things that are to come at the same time as it forces each new thing that comes to be cast against all of the things that have been counted as art in the past and so art become it has art has both a A direction, or a certain kind of directionality. It changes, there's new kinds of things that are brought into being by artistic experiments, and yet at the same time, it has a certain kind of timelessness as well, because we don't get rid of all of the things, all the art that were in the past. And I guess I was trying to think the temporality of art when it gets, when experiment emerges in art, against or next to the temporality of science. When when the term experiment becomes linked to science in the, in the 17th century. And so science we tend to think of as having, um, you know, even if we're critical of this notion, as having a a progress narrative on um, that, you know, science through experiments creates new knowledge. And as a consequence, some of the old knowledge becomes, you know, less important. So, for example, if you're a physicist, you know, you think of yourself probably as being part of a, of the cutting edge of physicist knowledge. And you certainly need to know something about Newton, but you don't need to go read Newton himself, for example. Whereas in art, there's also sort of a, a, a semi-progress narrative in the sense that there's new, constantly new experiments, but yet you still have to go back and pay close attention to um, artworks from the past. So there's something, the term experiment has produced some aspects of art history that are like science and some aspects that are different. And I was trying to get at that in that first chapter, that the, the term experiment does interesting things to our sense of the temporality of art, some of which are like science and some of which are, are not like science.
1: Great. Thank you. Now, as we move into chapters two through six, we move into a series of case studies on what you call vital sensations. So the vital sensation that chapter two focuses on is the phenomenon of suspended out. Uh, suspended animation, excuse me. Now, this emerges as a concept um, in the late 18th century and emerges in the context, among other things, of surgery and medicine. And so because this is so fascinating, can you start us off in our exploration of this chapter by talking a little bit about that? Um, What is suspended animation um, for our purposes here, and how does this emerge as an important concept um, in the Romantic period?
0: Yeah, and I actually want to also add that the... Um, I think that in some ways the the initial impetus of this chapter was not uh, in my study of romantic literature, but actually in some of the more contemporary work that I was doing and so for a project that I completed a few years ago, I was videotaping um, standard lab practices for creating a cell line. Um, and the part that most fascinated me both theoretically but also visually was the point at which the um, lab technician I was working with would put the cells that they had from which they had made a line into uh, this liquid nitrogen and and freeze them. And so I said, well you know well, why do you do that and what's the point?" I said, well I mean, by putting them in suspended animation, then we can go we basically stop time for these cells, at least vis-a-vis us, you know, in the lab. And then if we want to come back to these original cells, we can we can do that like you know several years later. And I mean just sort of this um it's not steam, I'm not sure what you call it, the stuff that sort of comes out of these liquid nitrogen containers, I think was a was visually fascinating for me. But rem- Reminded me in that moment of some of Keats's um, ode on a Grecian urn, in which he also is talking about freezing time. And so, at some point shortly after that, I was reading uh, some te- a text by the 18th century surgeon and experimentalist John Hunter, and he used the term suspended animation. And I thought and that intrigued me. I thought, well, I wonder when that term first comes into use on, um, and, and what he, what John Hunter meant was freezing, he, he thought that maybe you could freeze whole people and then wake them up, you know, for a couple days every hundred years and they could, as a consequence, live for like a thousand years. Um, and so I then, I mean, this term emerged in the, in the, essentially in the Romantic era in the late 18th century and it was used pretty much as we use it now to describe a state in which someone... Appears to be dead, but is not dead. For example, they might fall into very cold water. You take them out, and the real issue for the people who coined this term was they were trying to convince people not to bury these people, but make sure they were make sure they were actually dead and not in a state of suspended animation. So there were a number of societies that were developed to try and um, convince people first of all that people might look dead but not be dead, and then also develop ways to revive them. But for a number of Romantic era thinkers, um, especially scientists, the question was like, well, how could this be possible? How could you uh, appear dead but not be dead? I mean, what what physiologically was the precondition for that? And so a number of authors wrote about suspended animation. Now, the Romantic literary authors found this concept very, very intriguing um, and wrote a number of stories um, or novels or even poems in which that term or something like it comes up. Um, probably the most famous example uh, is in um, Frankenstein Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in which um, the, the the creature revives uh, a child that's that's fallen into some cold water um, Mary Shelley also wrote a story about a fictional story about someone who'd been frozen in the ice since the English Civil War and then was revived in the um, 19th century and and then could tell people to, as a firsthand witness of what had happened, you know, a century and a half beforehand. So it's a term that's actually used all over the place. It, it was a new term in the Romantic era, but used a lot. Um, I also see this as a term that's still, I mean, it's its still a concept, at least, that's important for contemporary art artistic or literary or filmic genres like horror and sci-fi where you have people frozen for a long time. Um, so it's one of those concepts that emerges in the Romantic era but re- remains a very important part uh, of our contemporary thought. And I was trying to trace out the different approaches that Romantic era authors took to this term. Some seen it as a positive thing, some seen it as a negative thing. Um, and I my hope is at least that that uh, chapter will, even if you are not, in principle, interested in Romantic era literature, that you will find the discussion that you will find with romantics stay with it, very, very relevant to contemporary uh, questions of what it would mean to suspend life or vitality, but then revive it.
1: And in this chapter, not only are you making this link between suspended animation and uh, modern or contemporary discourses, but you're also showing that romantic authors themselves understood that there was a link between suspended animation and modernity. And you're arguing here, and I I won't ask you to talk too much about it um, so that we can move on to the next chapter, but you're arguing here, I'll at least mention for listeners, that this is happening in at least two ways. In one hand, people like Coleridge um, are thinking about uh, suspended animation as a kind of dangerous condition and you talk about the loss of subjective autonomy in the wake of kind of the many distractions of modernity and on the other hand people like Keats and Shelley are thinking about suspended animation as a kind of desirable state that could help regulate as you put it in the book the animations of modern life and um, in that discussion you also link this up to recent work by Deleuze and Guattari um, so listeners who are interested in that kind of more contemporary conceptual or theoretical work will find a lot um, to think about here. Now Coleridge doesn't just come up in this chapter. He also forms one of the really fascinating case studies of the next chapter in which you look at experiences of disorientation and orientation within an environment. This is the second of our vital sensations. Now this chapter considers relationships among orientation, life, and what you call abandoned experiments. Now since abandoned experiments, this is a really important concept um, for, that really grounds a lot of the work that this chapter does. Can you start us off um, in our exploration of this chapter by describing what you mean by, expand, uh, by abandoned experiment? I know it's not the same thing as an unpublished draft or a fragment, but what is an abandoned experiment for your purposes and in what ways is this central to the work that this chapter is doing?
0: yeah it's um i mean coleridge in a in a way that's strange for me um became much more fundamental to this book than i had anticipated i i thought of percy and mary shelley as kind of the i don't know how to put it like sort of the heroes of the book originally when i first started writing that they would be the people who uh took those to, to, took approaches to vitality and experiment that um were most that I, with, with which i was most sympathetic but as i Began writing the book, I found myself more and more intrigued by Coleridge, which at first surprised me. because I mean, he's not he's, – he's a relatively – he's a politically conservative figure. He certainly wasn't very interested in actually doing any scientific experiments himself. Um, but I found that some of the ways in which he wrote about life and vitality and more importantly, the, the thinking about his biography was – Useful for thinking about what experiment could mean in in the Romantic era, and so he uh, began writing with uh, his doctor a an essay that was that it's now known as like as theory of life. So it's his theory of vitality, and this was for a prize composition that he was going to have the the doctor submit this um, the, the the essay that had been written jointly by them to a, to a, a prize uh, for a prize, and unfortunately. Coleridge had a tendency to become far more theoretical than was probably good for his publishing career. And so it never got published. Um, And it 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 was recovered after Coleridge's death. And so that's how we know about it. But I was interested in what that project of trying to write an essay jointly with someone else meant for Coleridge. Um, And of course, Coleridge had famously written jointly a volume of poetry with Wordsworth, lyrical ballads. And that process of collaboration had not gone very well. I mean, they'd published the volume, but then Wordsworth got unhappy with Coleridge's contributions. And so eventually Wordsworth basically in the second and third edition, more or less appropriated the volume. So Coleridge was, you know, trying again to, to work collaboratively, uh, work collaboratively with someone to publish something. And I was interested in, and it didn't work. I mean, it, it was it was a failure in some level, but I was trying to think about what it meant for Coleridge just to abandon this, to, to not try to publish it on his own or, or not to get frustrated at his collaborator. And so it's in that sense that I was thinking of an experiment, in this case, the attempt to work collaboratively on an essay about life, um, that... It didn't end really. Um, it didn't. It, it wasn't quite a failure, but it was just abandoned. Um, so I was trying to think of, you know, could we use this term "abandoned" usefully in connection with the term "experiment"? Now, I'll certainly I'll admit that I had in mind Peter Gallison's you know, great book on how... I mean, the title itself is, is great, and the book is, is also great, How Experiments End. So, you know, Gallison, a science and technology scholar, notes that, you know, experiments need to have an end, and how exactly do groups that are working on experiments negotiate that end of the experiment? And I was thinking, well, what happens if an experiment is abandoned? I mean, it doesn't end, um, but it doesn't continue either. Can there be... It's in some ways connected to that notion of suspension, right? That there's, like, the abandonment is like suspension as well. And so I was trying to think, you know, are there ways in which science and technology studies literature about experiments and their endings and beginnings can help us to think a bit about what it would mean for, in this case, a literary experiment and collaboration not to end, um, not to be, aban- I mean, not, not, not to fail, but to just be abandoned or suspended.
1: Now, just as the previous chapter in your discussion of Coleridge there talks about suspended animation and its relationship to a narcosis of the will, this chapter also takes on a narcosis um, of a sort in Coleridge's life, and this is, of course, his involvement with opium use, right, his use of opium. Now, you talk in this chapter about not just the context of his use of opium, but also the relationship between that, his biographical kind of background, and his attempt to create what you call a new vital genre the life manual now this is really fascinating because this um, brings up this link that you're showing here between text and life text and biography so can you talk a little bit about the importance of this what is this life manual he's attempting to create and why is this an important part of this part of the story
0: yeah, I mean, Colbert, this is one of the reasons why Coleridge is such an interesting figure for me because he begins his his literary career, um, or at least he's best known uh, in his for his early poems. Um, he was also writing political; he was writing all the different kinds of genres. He was writing uh, um, basically journalism, but he's known for his early poems, and he's one of the people that you know, we, we would study in the Introduction to Romanticism. And then he you know, sort of, he doesn't ever quit writing poetry, but his poetry gets a lot worse, and he writes less of it, and this is in large part because he begins to become increasingly dependent upon um, opium, and which he originally was, uh, took for, um, I mean, for a, sort of a valid medical reason, or at least in, at least in terms of the, of the time, um, but he, but it became clear to him fairly early on that he was unable to, 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 to quit taking opium, um, and he, he In the sort of 18, 15, 16, 17 period, he begins to try – he turns essentially away from poetry. He still writes a little bit, but he begins to write, try to figure out some new genre of writing that will, you know, I think to – to put it bluntly, will help him <laughs> regain control over his life um, and will also help readers to regain control over their life. And so one of these attempts is, is the Biographia Literaria, which is the sort of literary writing of a biography or of, of, of a bios of a life, in which it's it's an autobiography, essentially, but a very peculiar one. And then he writes a series of manuals, um, and these are texts that are designed to help readers to somehow get control of their lives or direct their lives in the proper direction. And so amongst literary critics, this is often seen as like, you know, Colored's abandonment of real literature. And many of these manuals position um, the Bible as some way, like the thing you towards which you need to orient yourself. Um, but I wanted to take or think about more deeply or seriously, like what does it mean to try to, provide for someone a handbook that will help them to orient themselves if they feel disoriented. Um, And I found that thinking about that really required me to think both these literary texts that Coleridge had written, but also his actual life. I mean, this isn't just an academic question for Coleridge. He is trying to essentially... Rest himself from drug dependency um, by means of these books, or at least partially by means of these books. Um, so it's like a—it's. It's I mean, the, the book isn't. I don't know how to put it. The book isn't just a book for him. It it is truly an attempt to sort mm-hmm. save himself and to save others. Um, not necessarily religiously, but you know, just to, to to free himself from this dependency. And so I found that keeping Coleridge's biography separate from his literary texts um didn't make sense for 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 this chapter because the Literary texts were an attempt for him, in part, to intervene in his actual biography in a way that's very, very clear. I mean, it's not just the sort of usual. Of course, I want my books to intervene in, in my in in my life. I want people to buy them and for people to think well of me. But you know, for him, it was more like if if this doesn't work out, I'm I might not make it. You know, I mean, it's 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 it was a very um existential kind of crisis for him. And so, I found that thinking his life and his text together was. Really, the only way to do this, um, and for literary critics, this is this is always troubled ground because you know, I mean, you don't want to explain the literary text by just making reference to the biography, um, or vice versa. But I found that you had to sort of think both of them together.
1: Now, speaking of thinking things together and thinking about bodies and texts um, and their relationships, this is also very much something that's at the heart or rather the stomach of the next chapter. Um, the next chapter opens with probably one of the best sentences that opens a chapter anywhere. <laughs> the end of the world begins with a stomach ache. Um, so you had me from there. So I love this chapter it clearly. Um, so chapter four, this chapter focuses on experimental interest in digestion and um, looks at the question, how can living matter from one's environment, right? Be incorporated into one's own body. Now in taking us through a a series of case studies that open up um, this phenomenon, this vital sensation of digestion, you're describing a phenomenon that you call collapse surgence. So can you start us off by talking a little bit about that? What is collapse surgence and how is that important for the work that you're doing here?
0: yeah this is this is you know this chapter is i mentioned at the start of, of our discussion that the the book is itself the book itself began um in the previous book I'd written about sympathy and my interest in the physiological category of sympathy. And really this chapter has probably the closest link to that in that the stomach was often understood as somehow the center of physiological sympathy. So even though the term sympathy doesn't come up much in the chapter, this is, this this is one of those sort of like early or chapters for, for the book. Um, and I was interested, uh, I mean, I, I, I I, I personally I mean I find the history of, of digestion itself fascinating um, just because it is one of those very very puzzling things how does it work how does digestion work but for the for people in the 18th and early 19th century it was really puzzling because part of the peculiarity is that the stomach is itself, you know, it's living tissue, and, and then it's digesting many things, at least those things from animals that were living tissue. And so one question was like, well, why doesn't the stomach digest itself? I mean, if, if it can do this with other living things, why doesn't it do it to itself? And so there were some experiments to try to figure out what, you know, can, can the stomach um, digest living things and one that I, I didn't get it in the chapter unfortunately but it's it's a very vivid image is what I think of, the, of as the frog in frog experiment and so um, the experimenter found a large frog and a small frog and stuck the live, sort of attached the live small frog, its legs into the stomach of the big frog of, of the larger frog and then pulled it out after a day and said, you know, it's strange but the legs are not digested at all and then this poor frog the small frog was killed and then the legs were digested, and so the conclusion was that there's something about living tissue that prevents, you know, from being digested. So this is the sort of the vitalism part that there was some some peculiar aspect of the fact of living that prevented, you know, the the uh, living legs from being digested, um, and. So I'm interested, I mean, interested in that in general. Um, and then what I'm interested in, and this is probably like less obvious how this is connected, but is the question of paranoia. Um, and that's like more of a political question, but in the Romantic era at least, and I think even into the 20th century, there's a strong connection between a, a sense of being persecuted, a paranoid sense of being persecuted, um, and digestion, or at least nausea. Um, and so I'm trying to link the two, that is political discussions and, di- and theories of digestion. And what I call call is surgeons is this sort of feeling of being nauseated because you suddenly, which is like the sort of physiological things connected with digestion, because you suddenly are aware or believe that there is like a conspiracy or there is some sort of plot. Now, I mean, Put that way, it may sound like, well, so this is like a, you know, a, a, a chapter about some kind of psychological problem. But, of course, in the 1790s in England, in the wake of the French Revolution, to be paranoid was not at all an unreasonable thing. I mean, <laughs> there were actually a lot of plots and a lot of conspiracies on both the part of government and the part of revolutionaries. So there were a number of interesting discussions in the 1790s about the – uh, the, the the feeling of nausea that's associated with political I mean I'm not sure paranoia is the right term to call it because you because you might be totally right that there was a plot um, and so that the chapter deals with that connection sort of this connection of political discourse to, to digestive or digestion theory and then uses this term collapse surgeons to describe the notion of something surging forth that's the nausea part and the collapse part is the notion of your previous sense of how the world worked collapsing and then a new one taking its place so it's a it's not i'm not sure if it's a pleasant word or not um collapse urgence yeah
1: <laughs> no, it's, it works here so you're doing this i mean a lot of what the chapter is about takes on this relationship between the body and systems that it's part of and you take us through three of what you call literary experiments that really take on this connection between the body and its systems um, and or, or and its systems and also the systems that the body is part of in different ways and some of them are explicitly taking on these issues of um, nervous illness or paranoia as you've mentioned so these include uh, another set of really also fascinating works by Coleridge, where he is suggesting to listeners and readers they had eaten the blood of slaves. And this brings us to another one of my favorite quotes here from Coleridge of the book. Part of, part of that food among you is sweetened with the blood of the murdered. I mean, boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, drop the mic. It's over. So Coleridge's anti-slavery lectures from one of the case studies. Another one of the case studies is William Godwin's novel, Caleb Williams. And another of the case studies is this book, A View of the Nervous Temperament, um, from the early 19th century, that links... what um, Trotter, the author, calls um, an epidemic of nervous illness and the increasing availability of foreign foods. Um, So can you just very briefly talk a little bit about that? Because from the, um, and I'll I'll mention why I'm particularly interested in this, as somebody who's interested in translation studies, one of the really brilliant parts of this discussion is you're talking about the stomach here as a translator. And this is one of many cases where you're linking up um, language and events so text and bodies in all of these cases but this one is perhaps particularly interesting to me so can can you talk about this connection nervous illness foreign foods what's going on here
0: yeah, it's it's a fascinating book. Um, and I think it's available on Google Books for free, so you can read it. And it's, it was a book that was written by a physician, but it was designed for lay people. So it's, it's already an interesting genre, right? So it's it's an attempt to speak not to his fellow professionals, but rather to a wider audience. And what he's trying to convince, I mean, I, what I suggest is he's trying to Induce a certain kind of paranoia in his audience because he's saying, uh, look, there's been an increase, a massive increase in what he calls nervous illnesses. Um, and, you know, as a reader, presumably you're going to feel like, well, I hope I'm not part of this. Uh, and so then he wants to give you as the, as the lay reader a sense of uh, the, the, the causes of why this might be the case. And... I mean, part of his problem is he's he's so committed to convincing everybody that this is the case that he's willing to multiply the things that cause nervous illness to almost everything that you, especially if you live in a city, might encounter. um, But especially like what you eat, and so he, in a sense, this guy Thomas Trotter, I think what he really wants is he wants like a return to some sort of more rural life in which you would just eat things that came you know off of your farm, but. So that's why he's unhappy with foreign foods. But his problem as he writes this this account is that, uh, as I say, that he increases the causes of what – Uh, of what causes nervous illness to such a great extent that it's not actually clear how anybody could, could um, escape being uh, afflicted with this nervous illness. And that's an interesting kind of message to send, I mean, to to provide in your book to say, okay, look, here's this nervous, there's an increase in this, in this kind of disease. Presumably you want to know that so you can prevent it. But yet he suggests there is no way to prevent it. Um, And so that's like a, I mean, this is, a case in fact even reading even reading might be something that might cause nervous illness. So if you're reading the book about this increase of nervous illness, you may just by doing that have already increased your chance of becoming, you know, one of these sufferers. So the quest my question was like, how do you manage that kind as an author, how do you manage that kind of message where you want to convince people, you want to make them you know, almost paranoid that this is going to happen, but yet you don't want to deprive them of any sense that they could actually intervene in this and prevent, you know, becoming sick themselves. Um, as I note at the end of the chapter, I think the same kind of dilemma emerges around a lot of contemporary food issues. Um, so that if you, you know, for example, if you, if there's a documentary um, about the ill effects of eating McDonald's food or about the ways in which uh, our meat is is generated, I mean, all these kinds of things. How do you convince people that this is a huge problem? Without at the same time depriving them of any agency um, to to change that. and that's that's part of the literary I, I say I call it literary or maybe strategic issue that I'm trying to raise there. And in the chapter, I mean I actually see Coleridge as the most successful in trying to manage that that problem of of both increase you know encouraging a sense of paranoia in his readers but also giving them some power to to actually intervene in in the dynamics that are bad
1: and for um, for listeners also who may not yet have had a chance to read the book the book works absolutely beautifully as a, a coherent object obviously but it also works um, for people who are thinking of assigning readings or assigning chapters for example in other courses for listeners who are interested in teaching courses that have anything to do with food history um, digestion history in part because of the really beautiful links that you're showing between contemporary discourses that include Silent Spring, Food Incorporated and this romantic um, this romantic context it actually might be a really really interesting chapter for graduate students or advanced undergraduates to use to think through um, these cross-temporal resonances Um, and and I'm actually thinking of assigning it if I teach a course like that in the future Um, it's a really really useful set of case studies Thank you you. So this brings us to the fifth chapter Um, and in the fifth chapter you explore Again, this really fascinating um, concept of media and medium. So chapter 5 looks at what you described as, quote, an awareness of becoming oneself as a medium for something else. You describe here the transformation of the concept of medium happening around the middle of the 19th century. and Perhaps that's a good place um, to enter into the larger context of this chapter. So could you start us off then by talking about that? What is transformation? forming in the, around the middle of the 19th century in terms of how medium is understood and what do we need to understand about those transformations to then proceed to understand um, the larger arguments you're making here?
0: Yeah, this is, I mean, I'll say that this is a, um, a topic that I'm continuing to work on, the, the, the history of the term medium. Um, it, is, it is a complicated uh project because um, you know it's a very old word uh, and you also have to basically try to keep in in mind at the same time the way the term's being used in French and German um, and related terms like milieu um, and so we actually use the term milieu in English but the term milieu is what translated the English term medium in French in the 18th and nineteenth century and so um you know one great place to start with this history is Georges um Essay the Living um, and its Milieu, and he traces the history of the term milieu from basically the 17th century up into the 20th century. Um, And as I think he correctly notes, the term medium, um, as it was connected to science uh, in English, originally meant something like the material... The, the, the material space through which something was transmitted, as it was it was used in physics by people like Newton and, and Francis Bacon, um, and then what he notes, and I'm essentially agreeing with him to some extent here, is that the term moved into biology, uh, or what we would call biology now, in the late 18th and early 19th century, where it still had kind of a physicist sense. It meant things like, you know, bodies of water or air, um, or maybe even soil, uh, through which something passed. But what I add to this is that when it, when the term medium, or milieu in French, um, made its way into biology, it actually took on a slightly different sense, and it became also the precondition for something growing or developing. So it wasn't just about transmission of something from point A to point B, but also about growth and development. In the Romantic era, which I focus on mostly, these two senses were often used at the same time or maybe even in connection with each other so that you would think about how does physical displacement, that is movement from point A to point B, contribute to development or growth. Then what I see in the mid nineteenth century to get to your question is that there's a there's a, a splitting of those two senses, and so in the sciences, um, the biological sciences and the physio, in the um, physiological sciences, especially, there's the, the the term medium begins to be used to for that which maintains or helps uh, maintain the existence of living cells or. or Living organisms, and you can people start to create media so that you can keep cells um, alive and study them. So the sense of medium is bound up with life and development. Gets sort of parsed out to the sciences, and uh, the term, the sense of medium as a displacement from point A to point B, then actually gets taken up by the you know, what we would call the humanities now. So that you begin to talk about the media of art, like that, you know, that you would use, say, st- a sculptor would use stone to transmit his or her artistic inspiration to an audience through the medium of stone, and that's I think the way that uh, the, the the terms. Uh, uh, tend to be used now as well, at least for most of the twentieth century. I mean, it was you know it was interesting to me early in the project when I realized that scientists also use the term media, um, you know, to, to, to refer to like these fluids that they use to keep or these solids that they keep um, cells alive with. So, what I'm suggesting is that in the Romantic era, Romantic era thinkers were thinking both media as transmission and media as condition for vital development together. And there's something useful to that, and that that was then broken apart in the nineteenth, in the mid nineteenth century. And you know, my hope is that we can, to some extent, return to that romantic ability to think both transmission and vital development together at the same time. Great, thank you so much.
1: Now you're putting it um in this chapter or you you take us through a series of case studies that are framed as explorations of the relationships between two different kinds of narratives in romantic era discourse about the links among life, time, and media. These two narratives you call, on the one hand, a narrative of mediality, and so roughly that's an idea that every apparent end could be transformed into a means for another end, so mediality. There's also narratives of perfectibility. So here, um, that's a way of saying that mediality has a direction, and end, a telos. So mediality, perfectibility, and you're showing um, later in this chapter that it's actually the tensions between these two narratives of mediality and perfectibility produced very different understandings of media and of life. And you take us through different kinds of accounts what you call an official um, series or account and then an unofficial account so can you talk a little bit about that and I know um, this is a, a, a seemingly simple question that's <laughs> pretty complex um, but what is um, what is perhaps most important about understanding the difference between this official and unofficial account for us to understand the larger point that you're making here
0: yeah, so I mean, I, I think as an example of the official account, I take uh, Hegel, um, and Hegel's uh, suggestion that all of human and natural history, for that matter, is um, has been simply means toward a final end, which is the coming to self-consciousness of the natural and the... Um, and the human world, um, th- most particularly through Hegel's philosophy, so it's sort of a self-justifying um, system, and that this is a, a narrative of perfectibility. That there's, you know, basically a um, an implicit—it's sort of an Aristotelian notion too. There's an implicit end or telos in the beginning, and what so what Hegel's philosophy does is to narrative process that leads up to the to the final end product, and. That is I think you know one important way in which media were thought in the Romantic era that they're you know that the, a medium is a means to an end and there must be a final end if if there are you know if there are uh, ends at all and but what I'm suggesting is and and, and that's sort of like the dominant um, romantic narrative but I'm trying to show a second set of narratives that actually don't assume a final end they still use the concept of medium, but they try to emphasize that every potential or every seeming end is actually just the starting point of something else. Um, And so I I exemplify that with three authors. Um, One is Schelling, who was uh, also a German philosopher like Hegel. Another is the novelist um, Mary Shelley, or at least her her novel Frankenstein. And then the third one is... um, is saint who uh, or Joffrey, however you want to refer to him, who was interested in trying to create um, experimentally create monsters for the sake of um, you know seeing what what matter could do, essentially. Um, So I'm suggesting that there are these two different, there's this perfectibility narrative, there's this mediality narrative, and that even though the perfectibility is the one that's kind of come to stand for the Romantic era, um, for for, for many contemporary scholars, that there was this other dimension as well, um, and that we best understand the Romantic era when we see both of these as in tension with one another.
1: Thank you. So as we move into the last case study, and we'll do this only very briefly, I want to take a moment to just um, make clear for listeners and to recognize and to, to celebrate, actually, briefly, the fact that among the different or in addition to these focal case studies that we've been talking about um, that ground these different vital sensations and help develop the argument, there are also ways that each of these chapters are linked by the invocation repeatedly but in subtle ways that create relationships between the chapters without our even realizing that's happening until we get to the end of the book, um, like that don't take a center stage but instead give us a a kind of tracing through. One of those terms comes up at the end of this chapter here, and that's the idea of a population, which becomes important in ways I won't go into, but I'll just um, signal for listeners in your account of of the kind of unofficial way that um, narratives of mediality and perfectibility generate ideas of and and treatments of vitalism here. Now, another actor that kind of sneaks its way through many of the chapters without us even realizing explicitly that's happening, um, is the actor that takes center stage in this last um, (coughs) chapter on vital sensations. And that's the actor that I want to call plants. So chapter six focuses on plants and ideas of plant vitality and looks at the idea of cryptogamia, right, hidden generation, and also the importance of this ideas about and discourses around the strangeness, the uncanniness, the seductiveness of plants in the Romantic era. So there's a ton of material we could talk about in this chapter, um, but I'll ask you to just talk a little bit about the importance of this strangeness or uncanniness of plants for generating an attitude toward plant vitality that is important, again, for understanding the different modes of vitality that you're tracing in the book. So put another way, um, what's important about the uncanniness or strangeness of plants in the romantic era that helps build your larger argument in this part of the chapter?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I think I, also, I want to start by saying that um, it's always important for me, or it was important for me in this book, at least, to k- keep some hold on what Romanticism has taken has been taken to be, um, you know, from the nineteenth century on, um, so that in discussing experimental life and discussing vitalism, that I'm not just saying, okay, here's this romanticism you, n- you never heard about and, and, you know, pay attention to this, but rather to say um, here are many aspects of romanticism that we're familiar with, but here is what's really at stake in them. And so that was important to me in this chapter because the romantics, um, you know, are known either affectionately or not so affectionately as these people who just love to talk about plants. Um, And maybe, you know, they, they're sort they get sort of misty eyed when they think about plants. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons that romanticism, uh, the Romantic era poetry and literature is an important resource for the contemporary ecological movement. I um, mean, because it's, these are people who are seen, I think correctly. So as amongst the first to really value the natural world in the ways that we do, but it strikes me, it struck me. It's always struck me when I've read Romantic era poems about plants that even if they on the surface seem like these happy um, celebrations of different kinds of plants, there's actually something kind of creepy about it as well. Not creepy as in that they really actually hate the plants, but rather that the romantics recognize that there is something weird about plants um, in a very interesting way. But, I mean, plants are living, as are we, but they live very differently. I mean, most of them don't move at all, um, or, I mean, don't move off their own accord, And uh, that creates very different conditions for living, than if you're, you know, if if you move, if if you're able to displace yourself, and so my sense is that romantics were very aware of that, um, of that uncanny, of that eerie, of that strange aspect of plants, and wanted to use their poems not just to tell us that, like, okay, you know, hey, plants are strange, but but to somehow almost like draw on that eeriness, to have their poems become plant-like. So that in reading them, I'm suddenly inspired by, animated by a different form of life than I, you know, than the usual animal forms of life. Um, so that strikes me as what is what it's really at stake for the Romantics in their various poems on plants, um, you know, in various different kinds of plants, and um, that still, I mean, that I still think there's lots of resources there for the contem- for, for, for contemporary ecological movement, but it means you know it would mean changing our sense of of the of the plant world as well. I mean that we can still be tree huggers, for example, but we've got to recognize that what we're hugging is not a another human being who happens to have bark instead of skin i mean it's it's a very different form of life um, so yeah so that, that that's why I was interested in highlighting that eeriness strangeness, uncanniness of plants for the romantics.
1: So, Rob, I've taken up a whole lot of your time, um, but I don't want to let you go without at least um, giving you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the conclusion, because this is an important part of the book. So, in the conclusion, um, you are talking about, among other things, the ways that the romantics can help us think about contemporary phenomena and the implications that thinking about the romantics has for thinking and understanding contemporary biopolitics. So, briefly... If you um, want to talk about this at all, I think this is a really interesting part of the book. What are some of the most important ways for you that thinking about the romantic context does help us re-envision our ideas about contemporary biopolitics?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's two comments I'll make. And one is to say that what is what I find ex- always find exciting about the 18th and early 19th centuries or the, the romantic era is the proximity of literature and science and literary authors and scientific authors in the sense that many of them, uh, there wasn't the strict division that we have now. I mean, if you go back to 18th century scientific texts, most of us can read most of them um, in the same way that we can read most of the literary texts. Many of the people we think of scientists were, you know, either wrote poems or were also friends with people who did. So there's a certain proximity of science and literature that I think is very, very helpful for us in the sense that um, we don't that the Romantics didn't compartmentalize things into science and literature in the way that we do. And if we sort of follow that lead uh, by trying to understand, by by, by assuming that we also can make sense of what's going on with science and literature now, I think that we can can follow that lead. Um, The other aspect is a little bit more... um, Complicated, and it's in a sense the what what I'm beginning to to, I'm working on another book that comes essentially out of that media chapter um, and the concept of population that you were discussing, and so I think there's a a romantic interest in an romantic uh, interest in thinking life in terms of variation rather than in terms of types or in terms of essential species. So that the Romantics are much more open than many 18th century thinkers to thinking of something like monstrosity as actually the rule rather than the exception. So in the 18th century, often, a you know, monstrosity is like a falling away from the perfect form. Whereas in the Romantic era, it's often that there really is only monstrosity. I mean there's just there's different kinds of monsters but there's no sort of norm. And this is related to the notion of, you know, a population is made up of of unique individuals essentially that there isn't a best type and then everything else falls away from it, but rather that you have to think an individual as a collection of traits or something like that, or you have to think of um, groups as made up of singular entities or instances. And that this is, I think, a useful way of, of thinking about bi- biopolitics in our own contemporary moment um, to take on the importance of variation and in, in contemporary populations is, I think, a, a, a useful way of thinking what it means um, to engage with biopolitics in the present. And this is the, the sort of the start of the, of the new project that I'm working on. I'm very much at the start because this one, just, this one just came out, so I haven't gotten very far in the next one. But I'm interested in the history of the concept of population from the 18th century um, to the present, and especially its relationship to aesthetics. So the way in which um, uh, concepts of population then serve as frames that Make or that, that, that makes some kinds of phenomena beautiful, some kinds ugly, some kinds sublime, and so on. So that's that's a sort of I'm perhaps too abstract answer to, to your question, but it's it's the um it's the it's the way I'm, I'm i myself am moving it f- uh, forward from my from my conclusion to try to think about you know what is the relevance of Romanticism to our contemporary moment.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I usually end um, by asking you what you're working on now, but you just talked a little bit about that. So instead, (laughs) I'll end um, with what's usually my penultimate question, which is um, Is there anything else about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? And and I'm especially um, uh, earnest about asking you this year and, and trying to give you this opportunity because there is so much about the book. It is so rich, and we really just barely scratched the surface. Um, so I want to, at the very least, signal for listeners how much more there is um, to explore in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. So is there anything in particular um, that you'd like to mention that didn't come up?
0: Um, I guess the, the, the one thing that, I, that I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that this book will encourage literary critics especially to consult on the extensive and exciting science and technology studies literature that, that is out there. I mean, not all of it, of course, there's so much of it, but I mean that literary critics have been less attentive than I think they should have been to literature, uh, to, to science and technology studies literature, and as I noted before, say around the concept of experiment, where you know in literary criticism it's just not been a term that's been interrogated very much, despite the fact that there's a huge literature on this term in science and technology studies. At the same time, I also hope um, that some, at least, some te- science and technology studies people will find the book useful because. At least in certain strains of science and technology studies, uh, the literary dimension of text has actually been important. So, as I note in the in the I think it's in the introduction, on um, uh, Shapin and Schaffer in their in Leviathan talk about the literary technology of the scientific report. Now, I think they just basically mean you know kind of like the rhetorically powerful way of of. Doing things uh, or of, of, of influencing people, but there is a literary dimension to science and art, and, and or at least there's literary aspects. And I'm hoping in the book to bring the two together. Um, you know, others will judge if I've been successful or not. But I really think that I, I certainly know as a literary critic that we have a lot to, that we literary critics have a lot to learn from science and technology studies. Um, people, at least if we're interested in literature and science, and I hope that that, that um, goes the other way as well. Although again, others will will judge if I'm right on that or not.
1: Well, thanks so much, Rob. It's really been a pleasure. The book is fabulous. And thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Well, thank you for, for giving me the time. I'm, I'm happy, happy to talk about it and grateful for the uh, opportunity to, to talk with you about it.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society.
0: Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.